Hey, would you grab your Bibles, turn to John 9, and let's read. So let's go up to 859, um, so that we can kind of put everything in context, because all of this is together in the same sequence. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now just stop there for a minute. That's pretty amazing. Came back seeing. Mud anointing. Eight. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. So this is the sixth of seven miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And this one will also cause fall out between Jesus and the religious leaders. We'll deal with that more next week. But he does this healing on the Sabbath once again, which they will not be happy about. And they are, seem to not ever be happy. And it has continued to get worse and worse um, uh, with them. But Jesus brings light to the darkness in this man's life today. As a young boy, Robert Louis Stevenson became so fascinated one night by the work of a lamplighter. He would get a ladder and he would put it there and he would get up on the ladder and he would reach up high and he would light um, the flame inside of the lamps. And one evening in Scotland, um, young Robert, as he watched the lamplighter with childish fascination, his parents heard him say these words, look, look, there is a man out there punching holes in the darkness. And as we look at John chapter 9, that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. And what he does in this man's life, he can do in your life and in my life. This is not a just cool story from back then that was pretty amazing, but Jesus is still bringing light to those who live in darkness. And so um, as we begin to look at this this morning, I want to begin just by talking about um, something I think is very important that this story tells us, and it's called the sovereign grace of Christ. And if you see there in verse 1, the first part, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man, saw the man, he knew the man's condition, a man who was blind from birth. So our context this morning, just to remind us, is right on the heels of Jesus has said, before Abraham is, was I am. And so he's making himself equal with God. 
they pick up stones and they are ready to stone him in the temple. And Jesus, probably most naturally, supernaturally, slips away from them. And as he's leaving that setting is where we encounter the first part of John 9, verse 1. I love what it reveals about Christ here. And I think you should too. If you don't, we've got a thing out there that we're going to hook up to your chest to see if your heart is alive this morning. Listen to this reality. He's leaving where they want to kill him. They have stones in their hands. And instead of continuing to keep distance between himself and those who want to kill him, Jesus stops. He just stops. He doesn't continue to think about his safety. He sees a man there in a condition that the man was born with. Nobody can help him. He is stuck in this condition. He is living in darkness and Jesus sees him and Jesus will stop right where he is. And we have all seen this in our life. We've all been somewhere where a consistent crowd of people are coming. Maybe you've been to a religious site somewhere and there are always beggars at these sites because people who come there to worship, their hearts are tender. They've come to to give, they've got money, they, they've come to give an offering, or they've, they've come to pray, or maybe they're feeling guilty about something. And so they have come, and so, so these beggars are always at these places. And this man has spent his life doing this, coming to the temple and begging and asking other people to help him. He has great, great needs in his life. And he needs someone who is outside of himself to be able to touch him and to bring about the healing that he desperately needs. And so the setting finds what I believe to be a very beautiful picture in the gospel here, a blind man begging, the Son of God leaving a place where they want to kill him. And can you find a more beautiful scene set up for the glory of Christ to be revealed in the life of someone as Jesus meeting him under these circumstances? It's interesting that... If you go to Matthew, don't need to go there, but if you were to go to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew records something interesting about the blind and the lame. And this is what Matthew records in Matthew 21, 14. He said, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I want you to think about that for a moment. So they hear about this guy who's been all over Israel. He's been healing people. And so those in and around Jerusalem hear about Jesus And the blind and the lame sought out Jesus. They figured out a way that they could get to the temple to get into the presence of Jesus because they knew that Jesus had the power and the authority to bring healing to their lives. Now, this guy, we don't know anything about him. We don't know where he's been. Has he been living on a rock? Has he been somewhere else? And he's come back. We don't don't know anything about him. But he's not gotten in on the healing that is happening and taking places, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, there are six miracles, big significant miracles in the Old Testament. There are three resurrections and there are three healings. But when you come to the Gospels, healing is taking place from the hand of Jesus over and over and over again. And so it should have prepared the religious leaders to be ready when they looked at Christ to know all of the writings about the, the one that's going to come from Isaiah who would open the eyes of the blind and he would free those who are captive. 
but they missed out on that. But Jesus is just has been doing incredible amount of work. This guy somehow has either not heard about it, he's not been around, or maybe he's had nobody there um, to get him to the place. But this moment is amazing. He is not even looking for Christ. He's not even listening for Christ on this day. And yet everything changes for his life because Jesus steps into his life. He takes the initiative. The sovereign work of God choosing to stop. He could have walked by. Jesus didn't heal everybody in the Gospels. But on this occasion, he stopped to encounter this man. And I don't know where you are in the room this morning, but I hope that you are grateful as I am that one time Christ stopped in my life. He opened my eyes. And I came to faith. And my life has obviously not been perfect. My life has never been the same because Jesus stopped where I was and He opened my eyes. Here's a man not expecting sight. He's not expecting grace. He is not expecting mercy. He is not looking for sight. And yet that's exactly what Jesus gives him on this day such grace and it's why this grace is incredibly amazing so when we think about john 9 1 as he passed by a man blind from birth it points to and reminds us of darkness of an inability of an inability to see jesus and of an inability to even be aware of jesus and that's the case spiritually when we are dead we are dead spiritually not able to see, not able to hear, not able to walk. And so here's this man representing for us a picture of everyone. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. But it reminds us of the darkness, the inability to see, nor being aware of even who Jesus is. It's clear that other blind men had already, blind men had already sought out Christ and they had been healed. But this one has not. But it becomes this amazing, beautiful picture of the work of God in a life. Let's look at the second thing this morning. So the same thing, verse 1 of John 9. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I don't know what this is like. I tried to, I tried to think about it. I, I, can't, I can't even understand blindness. None of us can. If you have sight, we can't understand this at all. I'm, I, I'm big on sunsets. I think sunsets are pretty amazing and they're awesome. So I've always got my camera ready. Um, if I'm even driving down the road, I do it safely. But I want to take a picture. I, want to, I just love, and I've got a file on my computer of just sunsets. I just love that. He's never seen a sunset. He's never seen his parents' faces. He's never seen any of his friends. He's never seen the beauty of the temple. He's never seen anything in his life. He was born in utter darkness. And the Bible's really clear about this. Everybody who is born is born in utter darkness spiritually. This man was born spiritually dark, in darkness. He was also physically in darkness. But every one of us in the room, when we were born, we were born in darkness, separated from God because of our sin nature. There's nothing that we could do about that. It wasn't enough love, enough prayers. It's not only God can bring sight to those who are blind. And I love what happens here. God steps into the pain, steps into the disappointment, steps into the darkness, and He brings light, and He touches our pain. He touches our mess. He touches our weakness, and He will use it 
to the great glory of His name. And so spiritual blindness and brokenness, they are rampant and constant in a world full of sin. I don't need to convince, I hope I don't need to convince anybody in the room this morning that our world is incredibly broken, incredibly confused, in utter darkness, and lost and longing for something to bring healing and that something is a someone. And, and this is not going away. The brokenness is here and it will not go away until He makes all things new in the coming new world, in the new heaven, in the new earth. And until then, our perspective on brokenness leads us to see what He can do in a world that is full of brokenness. He is interested in bringing wholeness to your life this morning. There's not a person in here, in, the, in this room this morning, that He doesn't have the ability and the power and the love and the mercy and the grace and the tenderness to touch your life today. To rescue you from your brokenness that maybe you have even caused in your own life. And if others have caused that in your life, He can bring healing and forgiveness in those situations as well. And so as we begin to look at this, this man becomes for us a picture of everyone who has been born. For all have sinned and there is not anyone who is perfect. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a one of us and this is from birth. And no matter how much this man might have dreamed of having sight, he would have talked of having sight, he would have desired of having sight. One fact remained in his life, and it was what fact? He was blind, and he was going to stay that way. There was nothing that was going to be able to bring any kind of change about this. He couldn't see. Doctors couldn't help him. His parents couldn't help him. Attendance at the temple couldn't help him. Giving enough money um, in the temple treasury could not help him. His neighbors could not help him. No man could help him gain his sight. He is helpless in this state unless someone far greater would intervene in his life. And so sin, for us, we should see this. Sin, spiritual blindness, hopefully you know this as well, does not get better on its own. You have, if you and I have a sin issue in our life, and it remains and we just go, well, it's just going to get better. It is not going to get better. There has to be an intervention in the midst of that to bring about the healing and the, and the touch that's needed. Only Christ can do this work. Only His touch can open our spiritual eyes. And so we know in verse 8 that this condition has forced this man to live a life of being a beggar every day asking others for help in his daily life. And so this lack of sight kept him from having job skill or, or having a place in the culture. And from what we will read in a moment, he will view himself as damaged goods. My life doesn't have value because of sin. And there's a false perspective that's that that we will talk about here in a moment. He would have known what others thought about him. One, that he was sinful. So let me tell you what was going on in these days. The Jews had an understanding that if you were born blind, you were born lame, and particularly in regard to uh, blindness, 
You were blind because before you were born, when you were in your mother's womb, you sinned so grievously that it caused a punishment of blindness. They also taught this, the rabbis did, that maybe it's not that, but your parents had done something so bad that God is punishing the child for the sin of the mother or the father. This dominated the culture. This man would have grown up in this culture knowing this, I am this way, but because before I even knew anything, I had done something so bad that dishonored God that I was born blind, or my parents have done something so horrible and horrendous that God has punished me because of that sin, and I am blind. He would have been labeled again as damaged. He would have lived a lonely, isolated life where he wondered whether the sin either he or his parents had committed. Could it ever be forgiven? Could any of this be reversed? Was there any kind of hope? Or were just things settled this way and it was going to remain this way for the rest of his life? He would just remain in darkness. And by the way, there is no adequate answer from a human perspective for something that's communicated like that. You're blind because your parents did this, or you're blind because before you were even born, you were in the womb. You did something so bad that it caused this condition in your life. There's not, I mean, how do you answer a statement like that? How, how, do, you, how do you address that? It's so false. It's so, you, you address it with the truth, obviously. But when the culture dominates that kind of idea it just becomes ingrained in people and it's only the freedom of the truth that can bring that about he would have also had a pretty skewed view of god don't you think (laughs) wow yahweh is that angry that i'm being punished because of my parents i'm living in darkness because of something my mom and dad did he probably would have not trusted God real well. It would be hard to trust God when that is the teaching. And he would have seen himself as beyond repair. No hope. Later he will say of his prior condition, because he doesn't remain this way, and he will speak of its hopelessness. He will say in John nine thirty two, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of the blind. This was incredibly rare. And and again, his condition right now seems beyond repair, but we know that Jesus has the power and we know the story. But he might have known some of the passages from the Old Testament, particularly those in Isaiah, that spoke about one who was coming who would give sight to the blind. And maybe, there was just maybe, there was a little bit of hope in his heart that something could change. And maybe he had heard of Jesus. We have no idea about giving sight to others. But I just want to say this this morning. I want to make it clear, and I want you to hear it. There is nobody in this room this morning. There is not one person in this room this morning, regardless of what you have done, that you are beyond the hand of God bringing repair to your life and forgiveness to your life. Nobody's beyond that reach. And if you've convinced yourself that something from your past has been too grievous, that you're like the prodigal son. You want to return home, but you, gotta, you can't return home 
a child because you've sinned so bad. So you're going to go back and say, I'll just be a slave. I'll be a servant. And you've been living distant because of something maybe that's happened. And I want to say this morning, there is freedom in Christ. There is hope in Christ this morning. And none of us are beyond repair. But repentance is required to come into the healing that Christ offers. And many wonder, is this my life? Am I stuck in this kind of situation? Am I stuck with these labels that people have given me? Am I stuck in this chain? Is this the way it is going to continue to be? And I want to lovingly say this morning, there is such hope today. There is hope because Jesus is here. And I believe that many people are like this man. They become not just physical beggars, but they become spiritual beggars in their lives, drawing off of other people to meet their needs and not ultimately having direction and knowing what they need to do in their lives. And I have also met so many people who are self-confident in my lifetime who don't know the Lord. And when they are honest, if I continue to know them over time, there eventually comes a day in time where they realize that their money, their house, their cars, their reputation, their resume is not enough to answer the questions that they have about life. And I will go so far to say this this morning, is that there are many worldviews in the world today about who God is and about Christianity. And if your worldview If your worldview leads you to harm yourself and to heap shame upon yourself, that is a broken worldview. It doesn't bring healing. Christianity brings freedom. It brings hope. It brings peace. And so if you're here in the harm and you're harming yourself, whatever it is, physically, emotionally, relationally, That is not authentic Christianity because Christ's Word brings freedom. And this man is stuck. He has no hope. He cannot get out of this. But there is one who can bring him out of it. The man doesn't have the power. None of his friends have the power. But Jesus has the power. And so think of the reality of this man's life. No sunset scene. You don't know what your parents look like. He's never seen the temple. He doesn't know what the color red or purple or yellow is. Everything in this man's life was dark. And while that is a tragic, tragic loss, there is another blindness that is more tragic. And it's the one that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This blindness is deeply tragic. It keeps people from hope and peace and security and allows the labels to just fall off of a life so that they can experience real life. We don't know anything about the age of this man at this particular point in time. All we know is this life was blindness. But everything's about to change because Jesus is passing by. And he would see Jesus. He would gaze into his face. He would be touched by Jesus. And all of the years of darkness and loneliness and false guilt and 
who's to blame for my condition. All of that was about to be over for him. And again, the amazing thing about grace, he wasn't even looking for any of this to stay. That's the beauty of God. He didn't wake up that morning saying, okay, today's the day. I'm going to get my side. He had no plans. This was not on the calendar. This was not there. And that's the beauty of what God does. He steps into broken lives and He brings the healing that is needed. And for those of us who know Christ, are we not humbled and grateful for the day that He saw us and He opened our eyes and He brought us into relationship with Himself? And again, there may be some in the room this morning who feel like life has passed you by. There's been too many years wasted. Too much baggage has been accumulated Too much hurt has been caused. Too many questions remain about who God is. Can He love somebody like me? And I just just want to lovingly again say this morning and, and boldly declare, no, it is not too late. We have gathered in His name. He is present here today. And for those who feel this way, I want you to know that there is hope in a world full of blindness and separation from God. Now, we have to deal with what the disciples bring up and what has driven this man to feel what he feels about himself. And the third thing I want us to see this morning is we must have a correct theology of suffering. Their false theology of suffering led them to have a false perspective of who God is and what God was doing in their lives. And so look at verse 2. So they're passing by coming from the potential stoning. Jesus sees him, and the disciples see him, and they've got a theology question. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice that Jesus saw the man. All the disciples want to do is ask about the man. And I tell you, a world of blaming. Have you looked around lately? We're good at this. A world that blames everybody for the problems. Kids blame their parents. Parents blame their kids. Other generations get blamed for the things. I feel like I should sing the song Living Years right now, but I won't. Every, everyone blames. Everyone blames. And the reality is there are things that have been done to us. That we didn't choose, we didn't invite into our lives, but they have come into our lives and they're here. Suffering marks this fallen world. And so Jesus sees the man, sees his condition. The disciples see the man, but they just want to ask a question. By the way, have they seen blind men get sight before? Yes, they have. Their natural response should have been, Jesus... Look at that man. You know you have healed so many. Can we help him? Let's, let's help him. Can you help him? Can you touch him and bring healing? But that's not. They bring up this theology question that is tied into this bad theology that is being taught in the day by the rabbis. And so they want to have a theological discussion. But Jesus sees the man as one in whom God's glory is going to be greatly manifested. There's going to be something more than just a question asked and answered. 
God's glory is going to be seen. Well, let's talk about this for a moment because I think it's really critical and we're going to spend some time here. This is why we won't finish what I had planned is this point. So this question of theirs was rampant during the time and it reflected a commonly held belief among the Jews that blindness came about directly because of sin. So watch. A sin happened and it led directly to someone being blind. That was taught, that was affirmed consistently. Now all around us, let's talk about this, this world has fallen. There are, because it is a fallen world, there are going to be people born blind. There are going to be people born with other conditions that, that are there, and they will be that way from birth. There will be other things that happen. In a broken world and in a fallen world, there are tragic things um, that happen in life. But Jesus is going to teach here we should have a different perspective. We shouldn't buy into the cultural norms of the day that are being taught. We must be, as always, I tell us, we must be biblical. We must line ourselves up. What does the Bible teach about some of these things? So the commonly held belief reflected that they did not have an accurate picture of the nature of God or even the nature of sin. Rather, they just embraced the commonly held perspective and just embraced that because it was what the people of the times were doing. And I think sadly this happens often in our day and time as well as whatever is new is in. And we cast out the old that is biblical and it's right and it is discarded. And this had been going on for a long time. So let's deal with this for a moment. Where did they get this idea? Where did they get this idea? Well, they got it from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And they got it mainly, particularly, in verse 5. If you'll remember what that says, let me just, I'll just go back and read it. This is what it says. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they had drawn this idea out of this and saying, and it began to be taught that if you were born with something, there was a direct correlation that something either you did, did in the womb or, or your parents did in their lifetime. And so this is a bad understanding of the teaching here. Here's how we ought to understand this teaching. And here, here it is. So in, the, in, in this text in, in Exodus 20, he is speaking to the fathers. He is speaking to the leaders. He is speaking to those who are to be the leaders of the nation and point people to the truth of following God and honoring Him and not bowing to idols. And in this, the word is given... That if you are going to, fathers, live in such a way where you embrace iniquity and you embrace unrighteousness, that is going to establish a path and a way among the people of God that is going to affect the future generations. We see this in our day and time, do we not? We see the fruit of the 60s, 70s, and we see that today. 
And it takes sometimes two to three to four to five generations to squash out what leaders have established in a nation. And that false path, that false idea falls upon the children. I have said this over and over in 2020. I'm, our kids are going to be exposed to things that you and I never would have imagined years ago. And I think down the road, without a supernatural intervention of God, our kids are going to grow up in a world that is far radically different than things that you and I have ever seen in our lifetime. And part of that is what Exodus 20 verse 5 is speaking about. It's when a nation and when a people embrace iniquity and embrace things and they make laws that are connected to unrighteousness and that is established in the land. The next generation embraces it and the next generation embraces it more and the next generation. And it takes a while to weed those things out of a people. So they taught that this man's sin, parents' sin, had caused his blindness, or he had done it. Now, this was not a fresh new perspective of what Jesus is dealing with here in John chapter 9. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus deals with this as well. There was a time when Pilate got some Galileans, and I'm just, this is in the Bible, it's there, He got some Galileans and he killed them and he chopped them up and he took their blood and he mixed it with some of their sacrifices. And so Jesus is talking to the people and he says this, are those Galileans that were, whose blood was mixed in the sacrifices with Pilate, are they worse offenders than others? Or in other words, did that happen to them because they had done something so bad and so they're getting punished for what they had done? And then Jesus tells the story in that same context is there was a tower in Siloam that fell over and killed a bunch of people. And so Jesus in Luke 13 says, so all those that the tower fell on, had they done something to deserve that killing and that punishment? And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. And he tells them there in Luke 13, he says this, but something worse is going to happen to you than that if you don't repent and turn to God and repent of your sin. Now, I want to show you something that refutes this idea, and I want you to go back to Ezekiel. Go to your left. I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 18. And I want to show you something that should have been squashed way back under Ezekiel's leadership and his teaching. So there's a famous proverb that was going around Israel during this time. And God's going to come to Ezekiel and says, I want you to tell the people to quit doing this proverb, quit saying this proverb. And it was a proverb that had to do with that the parent's sin was directly given to, in punishment, to the children. In Ezekiel 18, he deals with this and says, no, that is not the case, the way that they had come to interpret it. So look at Ezekiel 18, verse 1. We'll read through 4. So the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on the edge. Let's stop there. Here's the thing. So this is the proverb. This is what they, this is what they, were, they, were taught, they would teach. 
parents ate a bunch of sugar, grapes, sour grapes, ate it and ate it and ate it. And because they shouldn't have done that, God punished, or there's a punishment on the children that all the children's teeth are on the edge about to fall out of their mouth. And so they were teaching this idea that what the parents did in that setting was passed directly to the children. All right, look at three. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall be no more used by you in Israel. He says this, stop it. Stop doing this. Stop teaching this. Behold, all souls are mine, and the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins shall die. Now watch what happens here. He begins to give certain scenarios. Verse 5, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountain or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel and does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity and does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, he commits no robbery, he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, he does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now look at 10. Here's another scenario. But if he fathers a son, so if this righteous man fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to idols, commits abominations, lends an interest, and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He, the son, has done all these abominations, and he, the son, shall surely die. Why? Because his blood shall be upon himself. Notice, not the father. Okay, here's another scenario. Look at 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment and withholds his hand from iniquity. He takes no interest or profit. He obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Now, 18 is important. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die. He shall be responsible for his iniquity. Now, 19 and 20 are important. And yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness 
of the wicked shall be upon himself. So let's stop there. You get the picture, right? So they, they had ignored this teaching from Ezekiel. And so now here we are hundreds of years later, and we meet in the guy in John chapter 9, and they've ignored Ezekiel 18 in this teaching. And this is around still today. It's taught in many places. One of the things that just makes me shake my head are churches who are deeply involved in word of knowledge things. And what happens in these places who give these words of knowledge, everybody's future is great. This word of knowledge is, you've got a great future, you've got this coming, you've got this, and God's going to do this, and and you're going to be called this. And it all ignores counsel from Scripture that God's people suffer. Some people suffer. Some people have a great hope and a future in heaven, but their lot in life is difficult. And it's not because they've sinned. It's because in a fallen world, there's brokenness and there is pain. Sometimes there are direct consequences. A baby that is born addicted to cocaine, that is a direct link that baby being born from the mother being addicted to cocaine. Okay, so that, we're not ignoring that reality. But here's what we must embrace and what we must see. This thinking is around today. The Holy Spirit told Paul, Paul, guess what? It's Acts 20. Every single city that you're going to go into, hardship, persecution, calamity, All of this is your future. That was the word of knowledge the Spirit gave Paul. And and what happens is this. We have convinced ourselves that we are exempt from suffering. And our bad theology of understanding this has confused us when pain does come in our lives. And then some people will come along and they'll say, well, you just don't have faith enough for your healing. You don't have faith enough for this to happen. And and that's just not true. Jesus could have called angels to take him off the cross. He did not. There's a lot of things that could be, and then there are things that are. And I tell you, you see this often in our world today. There's this teaching, even in the church, there's this yin and yang Where every action, there is a reaction. Islam teaches that God had willed certain things and brought it about. And then the Jewish rabbis taught that no one died unless there had been sin or if blindness or there was sin in the womb. And so what I would like to do in closing today is I want to give us a theology of suffering that I think that we need in our lives that must be embraced by us and to shape our perspective on things. So the disciples probably held on to this common view of their day of sin and sickness. And so let's get a biblical view. And there are a number of different things. I could have have had a bunch of things, but I've got five of them here. And we're going to close with these five. And here's the first one. When you look at the biblical revelation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, our heroes of the faith all suffered. All of them suffered. So suffering is connected 
in the lives of the Old Testament and New Testament saints through scriptural revelation. It's not always in the context of discipline. Some of them just experience pain because life has pain. It's just there. Some of them experience pain because they did sin. Some of them it was because others did something to them. But suffering is taught in the Bible and it is connected to those who know God. See this symbol right here? It's a symbol of glory, but it is a symbol of suffering. So Jesus was not exempt from suffering. And so we need to know that this reality is a part of life here in this time of brokenness. Here's the second principle to have a biblical view of suffering. Suffering is set forth by Jesus as a central component in a disciple's life. It's part of a disciple's life. Christians get sick. They get cancer. They are persecuted. They are arrested for their faith. They lose jobs. They have cars that don't work anymore. Christians have all of these things happen to them. Suffering is set forth by Jesus as a central component in a disciple's life. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up the instrument of suffering, the cross, take up His cross, and follow Me. Follow Me. My path was a pathway of great joy of knowing my Father, but of suffering. Here's the third principle. Suffering is central to our faith as we consider and behold the cross. Every time we do the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration. We call it a celebrate. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper because we remember... We are remembering what has been done for us. But every time we eat of that lovely tasting wafer, isn't that awesome? It's so good. And we drink that juice. They are symbols of suffering. Church, boys and girls, listen to this. Students, you got to get this. And adults, if you don't have this now, you got to get it. In His body, He bore sin. Holy God bore in His body sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, He became sin for us. This great exchange that happened and took place. Real crown of thorns. Real whips. Real nails. Real spear in his side this is every time we do this this comes this life that we have we'll talk more about it next week it comes through suffering it came through the suffering of his life and he was not exempt from this suffering listen to hebrews chapter 5 7 and 8 in the days of his flesh jesus offered up prayers and supplications so listen to that isn't that nice Jesus prayed. That's so awesome. 
Well, how did he pray? With loud cries and tears. How did Jesus pray and seek his Father? He did so with loud cries and tears. In what context was he doing that? In this context. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Not dying on the cross, but from sin. And he was heard, the writer of Hebrews says, because of his reverence. Now listen to this, Hebrews 5.8. And although he was a son, and although he is the son of God, he learned obedience, Hebrews 5.8 says, through what he suffered. Through what he suffered. And so if you're here today, this is, this, is, this is not a, you're the answer to your life. This is Jesus is the answer to your life. And he suffered so that you and I could have life. And it should well up in us great worship, great joy, great passion for who he is. But if he's not exempt from suffering, why have we bought the lie that we are exempt from it? It's not a biblical idea. It is not a biblical teaching. And it should be repudiated. Because it's not biblical. And it is my duty as a pastor to not spend all of my time trying to answer the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world, among Christians, I shouldn't be selling that. I understand people who aren't Christians. But what I should be communicating to you and I is this, is how do we have great faith in the midst of suffering? That's what I need to be communicating. Because the people that we love to read about, they had great faith in the midst of unbelievable suffering, incredible suffering. Here's the fourth principle of a biblical view of suffering. Suffering is central to the path of developing Christian maturity. There is no Christian maturity without suffering. We read this this week. You'll recognize this. Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only that, see, 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 if, see how well you relate to this pounded my life this week but not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings Paul said and here's why Paul so wanted to be like Christ and he knew that the only way to be like Christ was the pathway of Christ suffering so not only that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and ability to stay and a power to stay with it, not run away from the faith. What does endurance produce? It produces character, integrity, godliness, Christ-likeness. What does character produce? It produces hope. It says this to us, that this is not it. I've got my hope set on something beyond this life here. Therefore, Paul said, this one wrecked me this week. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. How opposite is that of what we're taught? No, make sure everybody knows you got it all together. And Paul's like, no, 
I, I know that I'm a wreck, and I know that I'm weak, and so I'm just going to boast about it because He, it's when I am weak that He does His work. And so He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses for this reason, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And for the sake of Christ then, I'm content. I've come to live with the reality of weaknesses, of insults, of hardships, of persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Well, here's another one that's pretty interesting. Paul had this thing in his life, and he went to God and said, God, take this away. And God said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to take it away, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you something that's far better than me removing the thorn in your flesh. I'm going to give you my grace. And my grace is going to be sufficient. And so three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In case that's not enough, James writes this. Count it all joy, every bit of joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is no Christian maturity that doesn't go through the pathway of suffering. There's just not. Here's the last one, and we'll finish. Suffering is to be seen as a preparation for something God might do now or what He's going to do in glory. So here's this man. He's been blind since birth. Jesus sees him, gets his condition. The disciples have a theology question. Hey, did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, it's neither one of those men. We'll talk more about that next week. He's like, no, no, it, it doesn't have anything to do with that. This man's condition is this way so that God will get the glory. And so the things in our life that we have to live with, that are, we wrestle with, that seem to be permanent. I'm not talking about things that, would, would, that are habitual sin kind of stuff, but I mean stuff that's just, it's there. Autoimmune disease. Cancer. Some other kind of difficulty, and it's just, it's just present, and it's there. How do we see that? What, what, do we, how, how, what kind of perspective should we have on that? And every time we see those things that are there, and they're present, and they, some of them will remain, we should see them out as an opportunity that God could do something now to bring healing. By the way, you know He does heal still. Completely and holy. And then for some people, he doesn't heal. And they live a lifetime wrestling with things that are painful. Continued medicine. Continued treatment. Is that because he's not loving? 
and not good? No, it's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that every decision that God does and what God, he, he's good in everything that he does. So how should we see it? There's a fascinating text that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in the second letter. Listen to this. So we don't lose heart, Paul says. Well, why would we lose heart? Well, because there's a reality of all of our lives. Though our outer self is wasting away. By the way, can anybody relate to that? I used to be so fast. I used to could jump high. I used to weigh less. I used to have hair. Though our outer self is wasting away, Paul says our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's this weird thing happening. This shell getting older, breaking down, headed toward death. But inside, in suffering, in the pain, in the aging, in the wrestling, in the struggle, is being renewed day by day. Why? Because with loud cries and tears, what are we doing? We're calling out to God who will save us from sin, who will be our rescuer. Put it all together. So we don't lose heart, Paul said. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this. For this light momentary affliction. (laughs) Are you kidding? I watched my wife have a double mastectomy and go through chemo. That was not light. Carol right now has got cancer. She's lost a husband in the last years. Some of this stuff is heavy, isn't it? Until it's compared to being with King Jesus. And it's worth it all. So this light momentary affliction, what's it doing? Listen to this. Love the contrast. Light. And then he's going to use the word weight. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's rough here. But when we get there, we're going to go nothing. Not because we are powerful, but because He's almighty. And He will take a finger one day and He'll wipe an eye and say, no more. The old order of things has passed I have made everything new. Hang with me, I'm not done. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that we see, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're just transient. They're passing away. They don't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And we'll see it next week. We read it. And we're going to get excited next week. I, I, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for next week. I wish I could get there. It's right here in my notes. You know what the language says here? Jesus, I love what it says. Jesus anoints his eyes with spit and dirt. And then later, you know what the man says? Jesus anointed my eyes with mud. You see, he makes dirt wholly righteous because it's in his hands. And you will see chemo, see struggle as an anointing in a sense of preparing us and moving us to trust in him as the answer to all of our trial and all of our suffering. So 2,000 years ago, the Jews had an incorrect theology of suffering and it kept them from missing and being ready for what God was going to do in this man's life. His blindness, being born blind, was given to him so that God would get the glory on this day because of all the things that the man had to deal with. And we have got to shift our perspective to that. Is that not encouraging this morning that he's going to deepen us to be like his son in a unique powerful way let's pray